Hey, everybody, you are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, a podcast. I am your host, resident filmmaker, musician, dumb guy, Christian Surge. And as always, with us, our co host, Reverend, soon to be Dr. Johnny Morrison, the smart guy. Hey, everybody, it is good to have you with us uh, each week. And now for the next 23 minutes or potentially longer, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, politics from both a smart and dumb point of view. Thanks for listening. Hey, man, it's really good to get back together every week and release these podcasts. And sometimes when I look at the news, it is just filled with just these crazy articles that continue to kind of surprise me. I like I feel like I'm one of the people who say nothing surprises me, nothing shocks me, but mm-hmm. it is absolutely not true. I am shocked this week. Oh really? What what feels so shocking this week? Well, some of the articles are like uh, one article in particular out of the Guardian. I know it's not that great of a news source, but it's like US or white US professor Jessica Krug admits she has pretended to be black for years. Wow. I mean, this woman is an Amer- American black history teacher out of George Washington University. Oh my gosh. And she's pretending to be black. This is, she's pulling a real Rachel Dolezal. Do you remember Rachel Dolezal? I don't. She was the head of the NCAAP, National Association of Colored People in Washington, and she was white. Ah. Uh, but she had like tanned and um, permed her hair and done all these things, but she's leading the National Association of Colored People or the National Association of Advancement of Colored People. You know, I vaguely remember that, but things like this remind me of a line in one of my favorite films, Tombstone, where Val Kilmer is kind of hunched over Ringo and Wyatt Earp comes up and he kind of looks at him and he's like, "Uh, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. Yeah. And I just feel like that is so key to this day. That's funny. And then another article I read uh, a couple months ago about uh, 15,000 sheeps on their way to Saudi Arabia for food. The boat capsizes, killing all but 198 sheep. And I thought it was interesting after we talk about Uh eating less meat. And I didn't realize, you know, I I felt like I was really informed uh, by, you know, visiting some of these factory farms and seeing a lot of this footage and, and working on some films. And uh, then I didn't realize so many people are just really upset about these 15,000 sheep dying, which I think we should. Huh. This is the thing I don't know anything about, and I feel like you might be more of an expert in this. Is that a thing that happens often? Like, how often does our shipping mechanisms, like boats and trains and cargo ships and, uh, like, trucks, how often does that actually hurt animals slash kill animals in the process of being transported? I would imagine it happens a lot. Yeah, I started doing a little bit of Google search, and... That's the weirdest thing I ever said. I started doing a little bit of a Google search. And I found that more often than not, it's like every several times a year, we're finding boats that are capsized that have animals in them. And of course, you know, they're kept in horrible conditions as well. And the cattle were supposedly pregnant and, um, you know, shouldn't be moved and, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Kind of a crazy thing. So again, I was shocked by the news this week. Uh, I would say that. I might be really kind of sick of talking about racism, maybe Black Lives Matter, and people are like, why won't they stop talking? And then I thought, well, those who are experiencing racism, they're probably extra tired. And so I felt like a complete dumbass for even having Hmm. the thought of, I'm tired of talking about racism Hmm. because, you know, even I myself live in a 
predominantly Latino neighborhood. I mean, uh, at, a, at a quinceanera, it is not hard to spot me and my wife. Because mm-hmm. it's probably, you know, we're probably one of five white people in uh, this Latino neighborhood of about five or 6,000 people. So I, I felt kind of ashamed, a little guilty for feeling like, why, am I, why do I want to talk about racism? But mm. this article is about a homeowner out of Jacksonville, Florida, and the husband is white, the wife is black, and they decide they want to sell their house. They live in a predominantly uh, white suburban neighborhood, and the houses were appraising for four hundred and fifty to four hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Their house was right in that range, mm. and they were right inside the suburban uh, neighborhood. The appraiser comes over. Uh, husband is gone. The wife, who is black, is home. They've got pictures of their kids who are black and uh, artwork that is is black based. And the appraiser comes in, he appraises the home, and the appraisal comes in at 330000 I think. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or $150,000 mm. less than other homes in that neighborhood. And so she's a lawyer, and she's like, okay, hold on here. That's complete bullshit. Mm. And talks to her husband and says, I'm going to do an experiment. So she takes down all the pictures of her, uh, of her kids. She takes down anything that has to do with black and or black people or black history. Even she changed artwork. She then uh, let her husband stay home. She left and even had neighbors bring over some articles from their house mm. houses and it had a new appraisal uh, come over and appraise the home. And ironically, magically, mm-hmm. the house appraised for right, you know, in that four hundred fifty to four hundred seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollar range. So the question that it poses to me is, is this a clear example of racism or is it just a bad appraisal? And is there any place that racism, if it is racism, Mm. is there any place that racism doesn't exist or even thrive? Because on one hand, I'm like, yeah, that boy, you got a bad appraiser. Mm. Other hand, I'm like, that's clear example. Yeah, totally. This is a great article. One, because it taps into a really long history of discrimination and racism in home buying and housing. I mean, that's like, you go back to Levittown, the development of suburbs, you go back to redlining, you go back to the GI Bill after World War II. Like consistently, what we have done in America is discriminate against people of color and trying to buy homes, which then affects their ability to produce wealth because we're trying to protect the homogeneity of white communities and white wealth. And so this article, it just feels like it fits within this like perfect lineage of ongoing housing discrimination towards communities of color. And it's not going away, it just gets more and more insidious and sneaky about how it shows up, right? Mm. So originally you couldn't get a loan at all, or originally you couldn't move into a neighborhood at all, or originally this neighborhood was like for only these kinds of people. And so it's like, it's more explicit. And the more we name it, the more insidious and hidden it gets. And now it's in this appraisal process or is one of the ways in which it's showing up. So I think it is a very clear sign of uh, racial structuring and housing discrimination. So you're saying the more we say, hey, this is racist, Mm -hmm. the deeper it goes or the more people try to hide it? Yeah. So I had a professor in my doctoral program named um, Sung Chan Ra, who writes a lot about race and racism in the United States. And he always used to say it like this. He's like, the narrative of white supremacy that lives embedded in American culture goes untouched most of the time by the policy changes that we make. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation hypothetically ends slavery, though it doesn't fully go into effect until Juneteenth. 
but it ends slavery. But that doesn't mean that racism ends, right? So you have like the development mm. of Jim Crow. And then the civil rights pushes against some things of Jim Crow, but that doesn't mean that racism ends. It just becomes more insidious. And so the way the 13th Amendment is written or the way that mass incarceration happens, slavery is upheld and continues in these newer and less explicit forms because the narrative of white supremacy hasn't actually been dealt with. It's so elastic. It's like you can push on it, but it remains and just gets sneakier and sneakier. Okay, I'm trying to think of some way that can apply to my life where when I name it, I, I, I want to hide it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, I don't even know that it's that conscious. It's like, and, and I also, I'm not trying to say that things are worse or the same and not changing mm-hmm. for the better. I'm not trying to say that, but I do think that like, if the narrative of white supremacy doesn't change, then these things in culture that discriminate disadvantage and disenfranchised communities of color will maintain at insidious and secret levels Mm. because the, like the, the value system hasn't changed. Right. Yeah. You can make all the regulations you want, but that doesn't mean that the general populace hasn't changed their values. Yeah. Yes. If you still see black bodies as criminal Mm. and is like bringing with them less value, then you will continue to appraise home as less valuable. That reminds me of a story. I, I'm pulling into, uh, into my, the back alley where my garage is, where all the garages are. We kind of live in this mm-hmm. allotment. And as I roll in, there's about four policemen, and one guy is at the actual entrance. And I pull up, and he's like, no, you can't park here. I'm like, I live here. And he goes, you live here? And I go, yes. And he, and he literally, his word was, Jesus. And now I, I love Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm always like, <laughs> yes, praise Jesus. But I knew what he meant. Yeah. And I said, why do you say that? And he didn't say a word because he knew I'd found him out. And he Mm -hmm. said, go ahead and let me through to park. Mm -hmm. Now, again, another story happened to me, but on the other opposite end, just like this couple in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, we decide we want to get a refi on our home. We live in this neighborhood. We see that our homes are appraising for, you know, let's just say for a number, $450,000, same number. I'm going to give you that Mm -hmm. number. And the guy knocks at the door, and then when I open it, he gets this surprised look, and he goes, oh, hi. And mm. I didn't say it, and I didn't react it, but I was like, oh, you, you recognize that I am not Latino. Mm-hmm. And he comes in, then he assumed, he started talking about Trump, and he was and all this stuff, and assumed our political party, and started kind of trying to relate to kind of mm-hmm. burgers, hot dogs, and conservatism, right, as he stepped into the house. And then when our appraisal came back, we were appraised for $30,000 more than any other home mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. So we experienced the exact opposite of that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy for that because we got the refi. But unfortunately, I, I just don't know what it would be like to be yeah. a, a Bina and Alex Horton in Jacksonville, Florida and have that happen to them. Well, I mean, and what a great example of uh, white privilege. <laughs> Thank you. Asshole. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean it as a criticism. I, but like, it is, it is something that has nothing to do with what you chose to do. Hmm. Like, you didn't go, you didn't like bring that person into your home and I don't know, try to like accomplish some task or show him your like SAT scores or, or whatever. Like, you're not trying to show him that you're qualified for thirty thousand dollars more. Right. Right. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with your like the whiteness of your skin, the body that you inhabit. That's what. And the narratives of culture that say what that body means, what whiteness means, then increase the value of your home. Whereas in the article that we're talking about, what 
the narratives of what a black body means bring its own, bring a different set of uh, values to the table. So the appraisals are different. Mm. You know, after the experience, it makes me mm. feel bad. And I guess that is good because then I ask the question, what do I do about this? How do I mm-hmm. help this problem? And maybe that's what I should do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what this situation calls for in your own life. Like you've seen that example of like privilege in playing out in like home buying. And so then the question for you is like, yeah, how do I reflect on that? How do I change the way that I live and the voting habits that I have? And you know, how do I begin to live a different kind of life out of this, out of the situation? I just know that it doesn't matter how many black friends I might have, where I went to college, how many black people or people of color in my neighborhood growing up, I realize recently that I will never really know. I can't say, like, hey, I'm not racist because I went to college at a, you know, mm. a mixed college or I went to, you know, my neighborhood, we were one of, you know, 10 white people and, you know, 100 people. I just don't know because of mm. the history before me. That's exactly right. It's a strange place to be in. Mm-hmm. But then somebody listening to me saying it's a strange place to be in might say, well, mm. you're kind of a dick because, you know, I'm black and it's a shitty place to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's totally true. That's, and I think that's a helpful and, and right thing to name just now, which is that as like, you kind of named this at the beginning too, when you were like, I get tired of talking about race. And then I realize that I get tired of talking about something that people live every single day. Mm. And, and, and recognizing that reality is, is so fundamental to how you then engage the world. Like that you can't let your own fragility stop you from engaging because you're worn out from having conversations. Like people mm. are dying. Yeah. Well, last words for me are, I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about myself in this. I learned a lot about mm. white privilege. And I was able to put together the pieces based on this article that white privilege does exist. I experience it. Racism does mm. exist. I can see it and I want to do something about it. Yeah. I love that. That's a, what a great set of reflections that you just had, like on what even I think my hope is for smart guy, dumb guy. But like, what is the purpose of the show? I feel like you just summed it up. Like, here's this experience you had, you like learn these things and you know, we're hoping that everybody else gets invited into a similar process, no matter where you are on the intellectual spectrum or on the experiential spectrum. Like maybe you've like experienced racism your whole life. Like that's one side, but the other side is like somewhere learning and developing and coming into understanding. And so I just appreciate all the things you said, Christian, because it feels like it's an invitation for people who are listening. Thanks, Johnny. I just want to give everybody a hug now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's real. It's very real. And, and racism isn't the only issue. That is a good segue into our second conversation. So uh, this is an article, again, from the site Unheard, which is a bit of a nerdy, kind of like intellectual site, but they do really great opinion pieces. I like it. I've been really enjoying these articles, even though last week I said I unheard after yeah, yeah, I feel like you gave me a lot of shit for the last article, oh, so that's why I really preface this one. Is, <laughs> this one was easier, though. This one was, I think, it was like engaging, yes. and um, like she's a really great writer. But so the premise of this article is it's written by a queer woman who is wrestling with the search for the quote unquote gay gene, which is the, you know, like proving biologically 
someone's sexual orientation. And I think instead of introducing this article myself, I really just want to read this quote from her, Hmm. from the article. I think it sums it up really well. She says this quote, I cannot deny that the incessant search for the gay gene offends me because of the underlying and unspoken implications. My sexuality is not a problem waiting for a cure, and nor is it an oddity which needs explaining. Lesbian and gay men should not have to rely on evidence that we can't help it in order to be tolerated, Mm. end quote. Mm. I have a lot to say about this. Oh, really? I do. The search for the gay gene has has gone on uh, for longer than I've been alive. Mm -hmm. I worked on a movie uh, called Elder. It's about a Mormon missionary who goes on his mission in 1974 to Italy when the communist parties were protesting and college students were... Uh, getting behind communism, and he realizes he's gay, and he realizes he's also in a religion that um, views uh, homosexuality as a, a level of sin just above the murderers. That the murderers are hmm. literally, uh, you know, reaching at the homosexuals' ankles. And he was hmm. given uh, Thorazine, uh, an antipsychotic drug, to suppress his female quotient. You know, they've named mm-hmm. this stuff over the years, and it's infuriating. Mm-hmm. On one side, it's ridiculous on another side, and this is more of a, of a pentagram or something less than a square or two sides. There's more sides to this. So yeah, the, the video was uh, won an award at Tribeca and is now on the New York Times documentary list you can find. It's called Elder. Interesting. Anyway, it's infuriating that this, this, this yeah. is still an issue. One of the things that the article names, which I thought was really helpful, is that on one side, what you just named, you have this search for the gay gene as a way of which we could like, quote unquote, fix um, Mm. gay and lesbian people. And then on the other side, the search for the gay gene was like a a tool that would prove what she says, like, I can't help it. Like, this is who I am. And she says something in the article that that was really powerful, which is that the immutability, unchanging this is what that means, has done nothing for like the BIPOC community and so she's like, why would we think that it would do anything for the queer community? Mm. Which I thought was a very powerful statement. Like that on either side of this conversation, whether you're trying to disprove or, or invalidate or fix people, or if you're trying to prove your own existence and defend your own existence, her argument is like, it's actually not helpful in either place as, as, the, as the like cornerstone of our belief systems. It doesn't help us in either place. It actually is maybe hurting us. Well, first off, thanks for um, telling me what, uh, the definition of immutability is when you use those words, I, I need to know. <laughs> I just knew that if I didn't, you would uh, also call me on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And, and secondly, uh, when I went to high school, there was a big movement of this is just the way I am. So please accept me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's kind of goes into what this article was of these different shifts of on one side, there's uh, the gene, the other side, there's this, uh, I forgot how you put it. Oh, just that one side is like, I'm going to fix this thing that's broken. The other side is like, no, tolerate this thing that's in me. Yes. We were more, when I went to high school, it was more on the tolerating side. And in college, it was kind of shifting, you know, in the early 2000s Mm. into this, like, now what? So my my doctorate is in um, contextual theology, which is like, would be a better way of understanding it for folks today is like, it's really in critical theory. So, you know, people talk about critical race theory. Uh, that's my doctorate is in some ways like the stuff right below that, like critical theory generally. So that means I do a lot of critical gender studies, critical race studies. And if you go to like queer theorists outside of the cultural debate, like not the people who are like 
media personalities, like academics, right? Um, people who know stuff. People, <laughs> hypothetically, um, don't always trust academics. We can be assholes too. Indeed. Um, yeah, maybe more often than not, actually. <laughs> but uh, two people that I'm really thankful for in this conversation. One is a woman named Judith Butler, who's a queer theorist who kind of got her start in the 90s. She's still around writing. And one of the things that she helped us understand, and I think this is actually really helpful for my own understanding of sexuality in my life, not just like queer theory, but my own understanding, is that so much of gender is performative. Hmm. Meaning we learn what it means to be a gendered sexual being from the culture and the stories and the images around us. And we don't know when one, when we transition from like what is essential to what is cultural, to what is learned, to what is like psychological, like all those things are muddled in a ball of like yarn in our hearts. Hmm. That includes our biology, but it also includes all these cultural realities. And so to boil it down to say it is simply this or it is simply this, Judith Butler is like, that's you're you're taking something that is so big and complicated and you're trying to boil it down to one thing when it's actually a ball of like very complicated yarn that you need to unravel out of love and graciousness and in community with others. And that's the only way to truly understand sexuality at all. That sounds uh, too beautiful for me. It sounds, you know, like I, I've come from this area and made vast changes. I used mm. to believe that it was a complete hoax that anyone could be gay. That's mm. what I was taught. Just like you say, hey, we're, we're this ball of our experiences, what, you know, humanity and what uh, people teach us. I mm. used to think that that was just not true. And then I had this experience one time. Again, back in the Amazon, where I saw 2,000 cattle, young 15, 14-year-old cattle, male, separated and stuck together into one pen, very, very small, waiting for slaughter. Mm. And as we hung out with them and filmed them for the next three days, I saw a lot of homosexuality. And I was asking the farmers, what's, mm. what's happening? Why are these male uh, you know, why are these male bulls taking other male bulls? And he said, can you imagine a thousand 15-year-old hormone-driven teenagers stuck in mm. a, a Walmart that is locked for days and days? Mm. Do, you, do you know what would happen? Mm. And I thought what well, the interesting thing was, the scary thing was, is that once the smell of the other male was on another male, the other uh, male cows would continue to sodomize. I don't even know if that's the right word. That could be a racist word or a homophobic word, but continue to take the male, uh, other male until it collapsed and they would, they would, hmm. would be slowly trampled. So the, the, the ranchers would drag the cattle back outside the fence. Those who had been uh, sodomized or taken and wait to see if they could actually get up and walk themselves mm. into slaughter. So I would look at the animal kingdom, and I think that's why scientists are trying to find the gene, because in the animal mm. kingdom, if you take away that, that humanity that you call out, Johnny, that this, this uh, cultural norms and things, if you pull that out, you say, well, wow, animals, they don't have cultural norms, do they? And mm. um, you know, for the most part, they're not gay. Yes, there are a few examples, but for the most part, they're not. And like, for example, 30% of the albatross birds are female-female partners. Now, the albatross mates for life, male and female, but they're finding this on Oahu. And what they're finding is the two females are raising a chick. 
And the chick is essentially from a cheating male from another lifelong partnership that comes and mm. has sex with this uh, female bird and she doesn't have a partner, so she partners up with another female. So there's, it's a complicated subject about science. So I, mm. I used to believe in that. Well, I think that's the, yeah, that's interesting. I think that's one of the things I like about this article, which is that it is trying to layer in how complex it is. Mm, like, um, okay. there is arguments that like lots of animals engage in homosexual-like behavior. So if that's the if that's the way place that you want to go, okay, fine, that's one argument you go, then you go for the, the gauging. And I think what Judith Butler or this woman in this article is arguing is that to to try to boil it down to something that is like biologically essential misses how complex humans are, right? Mm. It's kind of, I think it's, it feels like it's actually what you named is that there's so many things that are complicated about humans and that to boil it down misses those things and misses the way in which our culture then stigmatizes, rewards, celebrates, allows for any of those realities. And so what she's saying is really, it's like, it is all so much more complicated than that. And to, to boil it down to something is actually kind of offensive. Yeah, it is complicated. You know, as humans, we are complicated. I think she's right. Then we have religion. Then we have our moral belief structure. And then we have our ethical mm. structure. And then we have our cultural structure. Oh, mm. it's, it, now my brain's exploding. This is a bit of a, a deviation. But like, what if you were to remove the kind of the sexualized narratives that we apply to human relationships and we begin to remove those things? Mm. Like, what would we then, what would culture look like in that sense if, if, yeah, if there was a, a deconstruction of sexualized narratives? Yeah. When we are little kids, it's very common for children to hold hands, like boys and boys to hold hands, um, couples, like little girls to hold hands. But we actually begin to stigmatize that kind of behavior the older they get out of a sexualized narrative. People are like, don't do that. It is sexualized. It's gay. So, which is crazy because then we're sexualizing the bodies of little children um, mm. at like eight and nine and 10 and 11, which is its own fundamentally broken thing. But then we also sexualize an action. And so it's interesting to say like, well, what would happen if that had never happened? Like if we didn't see that as a sexual action and, and intimacy was not restricted wholly to the erotic and to the sexual places of the bedroom, but was intimacy could be expressed in different genders throughout different ways and different kinds of physical touch and was never seen as sexual. Like that would, that would fundamentally change things, how we engage with each other in culture. Hebrews used to kiss each other. Male used to kiss each other. We still do that in Europe in some ways. In America, that's a, kind of unacceptable. That's a small example, but. I think what you just named is truly an impossible story. Hmm. I, I don't think that we could get rid of that narrative. And I think, I'm just going to say it. Like, I think rock and roll has been trying to get rid of that narrative since it began. The idea mm. of desexualizing sex or desexualizing actions, I think. Sure. Interesting. I don't, that's, that's an interesting idea. Um, that, what, what rock and roll does that feels really complicated to know. <laughs> to know. It is. I think you're right. This is where I feel really thankful. Like I like, so I'm a pastor. So if you're listening to this, you might be like, why is he reading Judith Butler? Like a queer theorist. It's not normally who you expect like a white pastor to read. Sure. But I'm really thankful for queer theorists because I think they really challenged my theology and helped me deconstruct the ways in which I think Western American culture has sexualized human bodies, restricted what human relationship is, and then tried to make sexuality something that is very simple. When I actually mm. think that if we can read scripture through a bigger lens and a bigger understanding, then we have a more complicated and 
bigger and richer and beautiful understanding of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a quote unquote, like an image bearer, what it means to be in relationship with other people that kind of deconstruct the way America commodifies sex, uh, celebrates sex in an unhealthy way, sexualizes bodies in an unhealthy way. It's like kind of like pushes against that for me. So yeah, I feel really thankful for this article and these Mm. writers because I think that America's view of sexuality is, is really broken. Yeah. It feels very unequal to me, just like white privilege, um, just like what you named in this, you know, homosexuality, gay gene, being a complicated issue. It feels very unfair and Mm. unequal and wrong. Last words. Last words. Well, here, the question that I wanted to ask, and I will end on the question is like, what about our own selves do we need to unlearn when it comes to human sexuality? And I think like what I would ask And what I'm asking myself is that our listeners would engage in that activity of unlearning, deconstructing, unhealthy notions of sexuality that try to limit, that try to control, that try to restrict, that try to boil it down to something limited and essential and allow it to be something that is complicated and that requires nurturing and compassion to understand. And I mean that, and, and, and every person that you're interacting with, that always sexuality requires a nurturing, compassionate approach. And that should start with yourself. And what's the question? What do we need to unlearn about our own um, sexuality? Mm. Everything. <laughs> yeah, amen. I want to really push this uh, equal idea, this unequal idea. Every subject that we've been talking about in this entire podcast has a scale to it. You know, it has mm. a, a weight to it, and it tips the scales one way or the other for the mm. other. And it's like this idea of equality, it has been and is still only true in America for those who actually believe in that story. Because if you don't believe it, it's almost as if your eyes are open. It's like mm. each, each week we talk about a subject, each wrongful death, each lie, each mm. appraisal incident we're reminded that the equality is really just a dream that we're trying to obtain and that only Mm. some of us believe in it. Yeah. I feel like that's a really great reflection. And it makes me think of some of the other conversations that we've had also, which is like, what then gives us a sense of purpose and significance as we do engage in these heavy conversations? Like if the story of like equality for everyone is being deconstructed, like what then what story do we turn to Mm -hmm. as we're trying to navigate this reality. Cause it feels like, like with this conversation about sexuality or the conversation about race, like there are stories that can give us the like imaginative power to engage with compassion and justice mm-hmm. while hoping in something better. And that's the story that we're in search of. I hope we find it. Yeah. I hope that, I hope that everyone listening is able to, to press in further and further into stories that give them hope and imaginative power to make something better. Well, that ends our episode this week of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, we have an Instagram. Super easy to find. It's Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, all lowercase. You'll find posts, uh, quotes from the show, and hopefully a couple of smart and dumb things too. And don't forget to check out the full version of the song Trenching we featured today. You can find the link in the description. Thanks for listening. Thanks. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.